date to your potential, inspiring, educating, and empowering single members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hosts are Peggy Matheson, betrayal trauma recovery expert, and Sharon Collier, certified life and relationship coach. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 46. We're talking to Ty Mansfield today. And I am currently reading, almost finished, with one of his new books, which is The Power of Stillness. And I'm so excited to be with you, Ty. I'm actually Mm -hmm. really honored to have you sitting in front of me here. Now, Ty and I, I'm going to tell you his background, but then I'm going to tell you how Ty and I know each other. Mm -hmm. And I know we've known each other. We were just sitting here talking for 17 years. 17 years, yeah. 17 years. So Ty, let's see if I can find this. Ty is a practicing marriage and family therapist and an adjunct instructor in religious education at Brigham Young University. And you just said to me that you're going... I will be moving full-time. I'll be a full-time assistant professor in religious ed. That is so awesome. Starting this fall. Or starting July 1st, actually. Okay. Ty also works with... um, areas of conflicting views on sexuality and gender, and he has a full practice of clients, and you said a large percentage of those may deal with same-sex attraction, right? Yeah. And I want to say, I want to shout out to his wife, um, Danielle. They've got five little ones, and I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. that she gave me some time with you today Mm -hmm. because I know that puts pressure on her, and I know you're very busy. Um, but the, 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 this book is The Power of Stillness, and Ty, I heard his talk from the Faith Matters First Restore Conference last fall and was just blown away. So now, Ty, you and I met 17 years ago, and mm-hmm. you were single at the time. Yes. I was married, and because the man I was married to had same-sex attraction, and that was your background as well, uh-huh. you and I met during doing some of that work together yeah. um, for men who um, have same-sex attraction. And so that's how Ty and I first met. So um, like I said, I'm really honored to be to have you here. And I'm Thank super you. excited about the mindfulness piece here um, because of the work that I do um, and the journey work that I do, which is restorative guided meditation and the power it has to heal Mm-hmm. and to shift people into a whole new trajectory of their life. So, And you know about mindfulness because <clears throat> of your studying and all of that. But I wanted to say, you said that almost 20 years ago, Deseret Book published your first book, In Quiet Desperation, yes. right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And and so tell me what's happening now. So with that specifically? With that specifically. What we were talking about a little bit offline. So, uh, you know, I have a big, probably two of the major intersecting themes of what I do is kind of helping people navigating the intersection of sexuality, gender, identity, and faith. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is mindfulness, right? It's a, And so just this, the power of contemplative practice to bring us back to ourselves, right? And to help us disentangle, right, a lot of the... Um, stories and right. you know, unpacking emotions and things, right. tr- working through trauma. We talk a lot things. on this podcast about that 
I mean, I say this a lot. We are not our emotions. We are not our thoughts. And if we can realize that, that we're this divine being and we don't have to buy into all of that. Yes. To help people learn how to just yes. sit with that and move through it. Yes. Which is what mindfulness is. Well, maybe we could even talk a little bit more about that because I think even this is maybe jumping a little bit ahead, but to state state it and state it and then bookmark it. But we talk a lot about coming to to get a body, right? But I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. We didn't come to Earth to get a body. We came to Earth to learn how to be embodied. And and in oh learning, oh my gosh, I just love that. Right? I never heard that before. I in, love that. In, but we but we don't, right? We I think even though we have this theology of this value of the body and the importance of of, of a body, we spend half of our ri- our lives running from it, right? Numbing, distracting, avoiding, right? And so part of life and in, in this life, part of part of our work here, I think our purpose here is to learn how to really be fully with, without. To, you know, and this is the paradox, right? That you were maybe even just describing to not identify with it, to be fully with it, and not identify it. as it. Yeah, yes, not attaching yes. to it, the emotion and the thoughts. Yes, yeah, the yeah, stories yeah. that we tell. Yeah, the assumptions that we make. Yeah, we're so learning cool. how to work with it, but we get too right. attached to it and we over-identify with it. Right. Right. And so to to disentangle some of those tendencies is a big part of our purpose here. That's awesome. I love that. So you are. You said you're coming out with. So next a year, up. yeah. So next year will be twenty years since that first book, and quite desperation was published. And so I'll be doing a twenty-year follow-up, just kind of bringing, kind of. I'm thinking of it as a sort of magnum opus. This is specifically dealing with same-sex attraction, sexual attraction issues, and all of that. Gender and sexuality. gender and mm-hmm. sexuality. Mm-hmm. So. In Quiet Desperation was your story mm-hmm. about your dealing with same-sex attraction mm-hmm. in your mm-hmm. life. And this 20-year, would you call it the... M- magnum opus. M- magnum it's just opus. a 20-year follow-up, but I can't imagine writing anything beyond this. I, I kind of, I'm kind of seeing this as moving, kind of switching. You want to follow years. up with everyone and say, this is where I'm at. This yeah. is what's happened in my journey. Mm-hmm. And you're now married, like I said, with Danielle and five kids, yeah. 13-year marriage, and... Mm-hmm it's not something you deal with anymore really other than in your practice, right? Uh, yeah, certainly not that I'd experience any conflict around. There you go. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So when I heard your talk at the Faith Matters Conference, mm-hmm. the thing that really struck me and that I kind of like to kind of really open up right here is that you were single for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And will you tell me a little bit about that journey and the mindfulness and how what God told you and how that moved you into where you are, mm-hmm. the, the journey you've been on? Yeah. So uh, some of, there's kind of two intersecting themes that have come together in ways that I didn't expect them to. So my second to last year uh, that I was at BYU was a total existential crisis. Like I just felt really conflicted. I was trying to, you know, figure out this intersection of sexuality and faith. Um, didn't know how to do it. Couldn't find other people who were doing it. Most yeah, of the you pe- were a trailblazer back then. There just wasn't very much. There wasn't, and most people that I n- could find uh, just were either kind of doing the double life thing, or I was a student at BYU at the time. Uh, were just hanging on until they graduated and had plans to leave the church and pursue same-sex relationships. So I felt really alone for a long time in that I just didn't know anybody else who was navigating similar terrain. Trying to stay on the faith path in the church and acknowledge that you have these attractions, right? So I didn't know anybody who even had the feelings. 
Uh, but then once I finally started, nav- so that felt really lonely, right? In its sure, own right. Yeah. Then once I started looking for resources, I couldn't find anybody who really wanted to stay. And that was really important to me. And so that felt, or the people who were, who were active in the church, I started attending a support group there in Provo. And that was the only place that I could find people, right? And there wasn't, I mean, man, this was still really, I mean, there wasn't online groups or anything that I could find. So I finally attended this support group, but didn't, I didn't really connect with anybody there. There was a couple of people that I actually resonated more with, but um, they'd been attending this group, one of them, had, for like 10 years. And I just thought, I'm not doing this in 10 years. So <laughs> Yeah, I want to move forward. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, and I'm kind of an all-or-nothing personality, and that's worked really well for me in some ways and not in others. <laughs> but, it's, but I just decided I'm going to figure this out. And so I spent a year kind of exploring relationships with men, dating. And at one point in that, saw myself on my way out of the church. And I didn't want to be there, but I didn't know how else to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, had a couple very powerful spiritual experiences. One was just feeling God's love and f- more profoundly than I'd ever felt before. I think I would have said that I believed in God's love or had maybe even had felt it, but it was nothing like I felt here. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, I think whatever I knew before was probably more theological than experiential. So this experience with God's love, just feeling completely enveloped, was very powerful for me and led me to want to keep trying. Mm-hmm. And then it was a few weeks later I had the experience that I talked about there where I was at BYU. I was actually attending a devotional and had this, and was just thinking, right, in my mind, um, I still don't know if I can, I just don't think I can do this. And was thinking about what that would look like if I left and just kind of, again, kind of thinking about my past and how did I get here? And and then I just very specifically heard this voice, and I didn't say this in the Faith Matters piece, but it was the voice said to me, if, I, if you leave, I will always take you back, but I need you now. And I just felt, then I, at, in that moment, I just felt completely like overcome in the spirit. And then mm. in that spirit... Again, I heard the words, prepare yourself to never be married, take life one day at a time, and focus on Christ. And that was it. Wow. So I interpreted that to mean that I would never be married. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That we, 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 we add to what Heavenly Father tells us. I've started more recently like going, well, now am I filling this in with my own story? Yes. But <laughs> right? I, because I, and I, I've become increasingly convinced that there's two different disciplines. One is the discipline of receiving revelation. The mm. other is the discipline of interpreting it. Yes. Right? Because we can receive authentic revelation and very much misinterpret it. And there's been a, there have been a couple times where I very distinctly misinterpreted that I know that I know was God speaking to me, but I... I interpreted it differently than what he was trying to tell me. Hmm. And so, but it takes hindsight to understand that, right? And well, so and there's a there's a level of maturity that you grew mm-hmm. through and came to understand how to do that, how to sit with that rather than interpreting it incorrectly, yeah. right? Yeah. So I always hold revelation tentatively. And there's even probably a story here I can circle back in just even getting to BYU, because you know, I've been here for 10 years and felt coming to BYU. That or moving back to Utah, I should say, from graduate school, because BYU invited me to come teach for a summer, just one summer term. That Danielle and I felt very strongly that we should move back, and I had never, I didn't have any plans to go back to Utah, but we had really strong feelings that we should move back. 
And I thought it was to, to, that this might be where it was leading. But for the last 10 years, it's been wondering, right? Just opportunities coming and going and things not working out. And, you know, and, and I mean, ultimately for a full circle, it did end up working out the way that I thought it would. But there were a number of different times in there that it didn't and just wondering like, God, what are you doing with me? Right. Like, and just having to trust the process. But this was, this was a 10 year process of just today's manna today. Right. Trusting the journey. Right. And there's still threads in my life that where I've had specific impressions and I've, I'm just thinking, God, I don't know what you, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this, right? So, and, and, but trusty, but having had enough of those experiences that I know that it's going to work, right? God will always, we can trust God. I just believe that. I love that. Can I, I'm going to stop you for just a minute here because mm-hmm. I'm really aware that our listeners, most of them are single. We do have a lot of married couples as well, but most of them are single because that's what we're targeting. But mm-hmm. what happened to you when you heard how did you, I know you say you can interpret or misinterpret, but tell Mm. me what happened to you when you received plan on never prepare yourself to never be married. married. Because I think we have a lot of people in the singles world that have never been married. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, tell us about that. So, um, the, with the feeling itself, I felt a lot of peace. Like something about the way the spirit spoke it to me just completely spoke peace into my soul. I knew that everything would work out. I just thought it'll not be in this life, right? And so I trusted, you know, you know, it's not will like, you know, it wasn't an if I'll get married. It was, I always believed that I would at some point. But I just, at this point, it was like, okay. But you were letting go of any expectation that, that it would, would be in, in this, this life. life. Mm-hmm. And, at and this believed point, strongly that it would not be in this life. Got it. You believed that it wouldn't be in this life. Yes. And you were, at that point, you were, you were on your, getting back in the church, getting back in the covenant path. Are you still yeah. dating guys? Or? I was never really inactive. It was just me trying to figure out, do I stay or do I go? Like, mm-hmm. can I do this in? Because I always wanted to do it in. I just didn't know how to do it and feel peaceful. Not not feel like I was in constant conflict. Yeah. Right? So when when I had that revelation, it was it was more of just feeling completely grounded and then just locking, being all in. So from that point on, I was all in. But the but the peace that I felt with it was really key. And something about it felt also liberating at the same time, like hmm. because I knew that God was in it and that God was with me. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't something that I was deciding to just, I was just deciding to do. Like I felt like this was something that, this was a God journey, not a church journey, a God journey. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, so totally. Feeling like I was walking with God through this mm-hmm. gave it a kind of meaning and peace that I don't know that I would have felt if I didn't have that. So that became really key was that this was a journey of me walking with God. And whatever life was going to look like, the the conflict, I don't know if I would say it was a conflict, but the big question that I had was how do you be happy as a single person? Because I've never heard any, we don't talk like that in the church. No, we don't. And so there's always, whether it's, I don't know, I don't know that I had ever heard it explicitly. But there has always felt to be this implicit message that you can't really be fully happy until you're married. That the that a fullness of joy happens with marriage. Right. Right. 
And, you know, A, that's not scriptural. And two, you know, it's not true, right? I just don't believe that. I do believe there's a lot of joy that can certainly come with marriage. But Christ said, in me, your joy is full. Not in, in marriage is your joy full. Mm, or in, or so in any other thing is your joy yeah. full. In me, your joy is full. So even though it's become kind of cliche at this point, right? President Nelson's statement that, that um, oh, now I'm going to botch it a little bit. But he said that your circumstances, um, how do you say it? True joy is not going to be found in your circumst- the, the circumstances of your lives, but it, rather in the focus of your lives. Right. Right. And, you know, the, the, when our focus is on Christ, we'll experience your joy. And I absolutely believe that, even though that quotes could become, you know, it's one of those quotes that gets you, you know, shared so much that it starts to feel a little cliche, mm-hmm. right? But true, very, very true. So my focus at that point became just that. I knew I want to focus on healing. Well, and I didn't know part of, there was another kind of impression that I had shortly after that. Cause I was like, I really just don't know what to do, um, to be happy. Like you're not to, to find happy. How do you be how do you live a full life as a single person? That became the next question on my mind. And, um, and so um, I had an impression that I was to focus on uh, spiritual and emotional growth. And spiritual growth, I understood. We talk about that. Emotional growth, I just, we don't talk about that. Like I know we have emotions, but I didn't know how do you grow them, right? And so right. this sense of like, like, do I go to therapy? Is that is right. this what At I'm this supposed point, to you do? Weren't a ther- you weren't even thinking of being a therapist, no, no. right? It hadn't even crossed my mind. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with that, but I did end up seeing a counselor. I, I graduated shortly after that. Well, at the end of that first year. So I, I had this experience, and whether it was my last year, graduated, moved to D.C., and that's when I uh, started seeing another therapist that really got into the, the deeper emotional work that led me to where I met you, David, and then you, and right, and, and kind of intersected with that whole community. That whole community. I think it's really interesting, Ty, that you, Heavenly Father, took you down this path where you, where he, where you could now do the work you needed to do to mm-hmm. move into the life that He had prepared for you. Yeah. But the first step really was saying you got to prepare to not be married. Yeah. I had to focus on, so the, the real work became, I have to learn how to thrive as a single person. And now in hindsight, I still see that as an essential step. I just had to learn it the long way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, so the next, that was the beginning of a seven year journey. So from that, the moment I had that impression Mm -hmm. until I met my wife was seven years. Mm -hmm. So a big part of that. So, you know, couple of years of really intense therapy and then five more years of just deeper therapeutic work, you know, uh, you know, men's weekends, right. and, you know, healing retreats, healing retreats. And, and so re- a lot of deep work so that the healing work that I did for a number of years was a really big piece of it. And then the next big piece is where this mindfulness part comes in. So then as I, I fell in love with healing work and that's when, when I was living in the DC area and that's when I decided to go back to school on family therapy. So I'm, I'm still just trusting this whole thing on faith. So I moved to Abilene, Texas to start my master's program in marriage and family therapy. And while I was there, was introduced to mindfulness kind of through this mental health lens, right? So you've got yeah. John Kabat-Zinn, right, led this revolution really of this infusion of um, mindfulness into medical and mental health. And so I moved to... Uh, um, Lubbock. Lubbock after that. But actually while I was there was when I had this impression, like... Why am I here, right? Because I was, if, as much as I loved what I was doing, I felt very lonely. 
um, lived by myself for a big part of that. I was in student, I was just running, I was in student housing, but they didn't fill it. So I was living by myself for a large chunk of it and loved the program, loved the students, loved the professors, but it was still just me a lot on my own. And then praying to know what I was supposed to, to learn from this. I knew that I was supposed to be there. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to learn. I love your questioning. I love that you keep going back to God. You keep mm-hmm. saying, what, what is my purpose being here? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a great question to ask any of us on our journeys. What's my purpose at this point in my life? Yeah, yeah. And, and that there is a purpose, right? right. I, I just have just learned that everything has purpose and design. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Elder Maxwell, when I, you know, his, his uh, statement about how we all have a customized curriculum, like that's felt like a, a life <laughs> mantra, right? This is yeah. part of my customized curriculum. Yeah. So he, um, but I had, then I had, as I was praying, I had this impression that it was to learn meaningful solitude. So that's when I really started practicing mindfulness. Got and it. then, uh, you know, to had a fairly consistent practice through then, then uh, through my time at Abilene, moved to Lubbock, again, started attending this Buddhist Sangha, uh, doing had kind of half-day meditations almost every Saturday. And then it was in there, but as I was, I kind of reached this point through all of this. And the thing that I that was um, a really key piece of this is Eastern conceptions of love, I think are closer to gospel conceptions of love than our Western Victorian romantic Oh, expressive yeah. individualist kind of expressions of love because in Eastern conceptions of love, love isn't love unless it's free. So the degree to which I need you is the degree to which I cannot love you. Right. Is the degree to which my capacity to love is compromised because now it becomes about me and my needs. It becomes transactional rather than gift. Hmm. Right. So it, love is a gift rather than love is a transaction to fill my needs. Yes. Yes. Or it's not love. We might like the feeling, but it's not love. <laughs> There's a difference between love and liking the feeling that I'm having. Yeah. Right? And so this, this Eastern idea that love must be free in order to be love. Right? It doesn't mean that those feelings that we, you know, romantic feelings are bad. It just means that they're not love in the truest sense. They can overlap with love, but they are not love. Because we can experience those with love and we can experience those without love. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Let's say that again. You can experience romantic feelings with love or you can experience romantic feelings without love. Yes. Exactly. I think our listeners need to take a moment, take a breath and listen to that. Breathe it in. (laughs) And it's the same with a lot of things. You can experience sexual attraction with love. That can be present with love, but it can also be present without love. Right. Mm-hmm. These are not we've conflated ideas. And that's the problem. Right. Is we tend to think of these things as synonymous with love as opposed to the potential for them for them to overlap with love. But them being distinctly different concepts. So interesting. So let me read you. Uh, I mentioned there was a couple of some, some additional quotes that I um, brought. But there's two quotes that, that I kind of came across early on that were really uh, kind of formative for me. One of them is, and these are again are both by Eastern thinkers, but one of them is a is a, a yogic teacher talking about love. And I think this is the sentiment here is something that I think we would like. Uh, it doesn't feel as conflicting, but when you really start to unpack it, 
you realize how hard it is, right? Mm-hmm. But he, this, uh, uh, this teacher said, um, true love in a relationship is realized only when two people, each connected with his or her deepest self, unite. Now we have a synergistic, not a draining relationship. We love one another not because we need love and not because the other needs love, but because love overflows our cup and we must share. Then rather than fall in love, we rise in love. I love that, rise in love. Yes. So very idealistic in yes. a sense, right? <laughs> um, but, but the idea here is that we have to be connected with our deepest self first. That's the in, part of the inner work that you were talking this about. We have to do that first. Well, and one of the things that I realized, and this was when I had done, uh, this was in uh, Men's Weekend where I first met um, David, uh, where um, I'd had this very, was doing this experiential process and had this very cathartic realization that I had spent 26 years living somebody else's life. And I had no idea who I was. And that was the most hmm. powerful and painful, uh, painful, but also cathartic mm-hmm. realization of this whole piece that I did because I, then I knew what my work was. I needed to figure out who I was mm. and, and really start to connect more deeply with me. I mean, there were things, there were things that I knew and I experiences with God that felt very real to me that I knew were very real and very mm. powerful. But, it, but a lot of, I think a lot of my pain was trying to conform to the teachings of the church. It was always kind of this external, externally motivated things, just doing what everybody else was telling me mm. that I should do. Mm-hmm. And, and, not, and doing that so much that I just didn't even know who I was, hmm. right? And you were in your mid-20s at this point? I was 26, yeah. You were 26. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was just after I had graduated. That, that was just a few months after I had graduated from BYU and moved to Washington, D.C., so I had that realization, and then that became another big part of my work. That's when I really started doing the found a therapist out in Washington D.C. and started doing a lot of the deep emotional work, a lot of attachment work, and inner child work, and just all the stuff that I didn't even realize was a thing. There mm-hmm. were wounds that I didn't even know were there, right? And, and, and you can't really until you explore no, this stuff. No, yeah, you can't. So, so that was very, it was very painful. It was, but it was also very powerful and very liberating in that it gave me a way forward, and I knew what my focus needed to be. Right. And so that became so, so learn, you know, the next few years was learning how to connect with this deepest sense of self. But now, this other quote is by Osho, who's uh, also another contemplative writer. But he said this he said, The capacity to be alone is the capacity to love. It may look paradoxical Mm. to you, but it is not. It is an existential Mm. truth. Only those people who are capable of being alone are capable of love, of sharing, of going into the deepest core of another person without possessing them, without becoming dependent on them. Or as another writer says, without claiming them for our own needs. Wow. Right? They allow the other absolute freedom because they know that if the other leaves, they will be as happy as they are now. Their happiness cannot be taken by the other because it is not given by the other. Wow. And, but, and this is where, and, I, and again, this betrays so much of our romantic sensibilities, right? Because we, this idea of you complete me and you had me at hello and I can't live all without you, are, right? Yeah, all this, all this stuff we're fed we, every day in the media and music and everything. We consume a steady diet of it and we love it, right? Because it comes with the dopamine and the neurochemical cocktail, but it's not love. It is it's not, not love. love. And so... And this became a really important part of, again, my own um, 
my own journey and also uh, became a little bit of a, created a little bit of a stumbling block early on with Danielle. And I'll, I'll, I'll share that because here I am, I'm learning these things. And my prayer became, I want you to teach me how to love. Like I want, it wasn't about, I can't have love or because I'm choosing not to pursue a same sex relationship or something that I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. But this was at the point when you were still thinking you weren't going to be married, right? Yes, for sure. And you were seeking to learn how to love because we're learning how to be love. Not just in a romantic context, we're learning how to become. If God is a being whose defining essence is love and light and wisdom and truth, we're becoming those beings now. And we don't start that process when we, uh, when we marry, right? And so to be learning all of these things at any life stage that we're in, regardless of our relationship status. And this is one of the things, you know, for 10 years I've been teaching this class called The Eternal Family at BYU. And that idea, it's called eternal family, singular, for a reason. It's not called eternal families. So this idea, and we could wax theological and go on a whole rabbit hole there, but there's a whole idea. I think we've completely inverted what God is calling us into. Because when we think historically, and if, if the order of operations, right, in terms of the revelations, what God wants us to know in the order that he reveals it to us. If there's anything about the order of what he reveals in terms of being like what he wants us to know first, he wants us to know, he wants us to understand something about Zion before he wants us to understand marriage. Mm -hmm. Right? Because we get this revelation, right, in in 1832, right, this, uh, what we now have is DNC 76, where Joseph and Sidney have this vision of the celestial glory, and it's this collective society, this collective church, all of us together, all exalted beings, seeing as we are seen and knowing as we are known, right? Which is the definition of intimacy. So there's this infinite quality of intimacy that we all experience collectively. This becomes prerequisite to understanding how to build Zion. Marriage is a capstone covenant, a capstone ordinance once we're getting all this foundational stuff first, yeah, right? But in our current culture, we think we had, you know, marriage, love and marriage down with Victorian romanticism and Disney and, you know, Jane Austen, right? And all of that. The, the patron saint of, <laughs> of romanticism. So we, so we have, but, but, but the Lord is trying to teach us something very, very different. That once we get, once we understand love, once we understand intimacy, once we understand Zion, then he's going to teach us something about marriage. Wow, and this we, is mind-blowing. And we've done it the other way around. Yes. We've, we've, we've inverted it in our culture. Wow. And so here we are. So these are the things that I feel like the Lord is teaching me right along in this journey. So I'm, I'm learning these things, and I just feel like God is teaching me so much. And at one point, I even had uh, Camille Frank Olson. She's, right. Right, she's retired now, but... She was, uh, a, um, she was a professor at BYU in ancient studies. Ancient scripture. Ancient mm-hmm. scripture, yes. yes. She was the chair of ancient scripture when she retired, but she and I were having a conversation once. And... Um, and I was single at the time she was married, but she didn't get married until she was in her mid fifties. But she made a, she made, she was telling me part of her story. She said, I had this realization at one point when she was single as uh, late forties, early fifties that, uh, she said, I was sitting at my, this table, my table, eating this, eating my breakfast, eating this bowl of cereal and just thinking to myself, I have such a good life. 
she said, it would require a really good man to be better than no man at all, right? And I'm thinking... So, and, and was she single her she, this whole time? She was married by the time she said this. So she was sending, she was sharing this. Yeah, so she didn't marry until she was in her 50s. That's, that's what I was asking, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so at this point, she when we were having this conversation, she was married to her now husband, Paul. But she was saying, I have a really good life. She was just sharing this as part really of her story. Because we were talking about singleness. I was, you know, some of the things that I had learned and she felt, she's like, I had felt like I'd learned certain things. It feels a little bit sexist for a man to say that, right? I was, I was, as she said this, I'm like, ah, that's how I feel, right? I feel like I just, it would, I would, I feel really happy and I could do this for the rest of my life. Like mm. I had, I had, I'd come to something. Mm-hmm. And so to say that, right, to say, you know, anytime I've tried to say it out loud, right, I could, you know, I'm really happy and it would take a really good woman to be better, better than a woman <laughs> at all. Right? It just sounds wrong, right? And so I don't, I, I have a hard time saying it. But the principle, I think, should be true both ways. Yes, absolutely. So I, but that's how I felt. And then um, as I was kind of coming into halfway through that first year in Lubbock, Again, my prayer has been, I want you to teach me how to love like this. I want this love. And I think a lot, I think more, even though I didn't really come to it through Moroni, right? Moroni 7, where he said, you know, he talks about true love, right? Charity is, he doesn't use this language, but ultimately is a spiritual gift that comes only to true disciples of Jesus Christ who pray with all the energy of their heart, right? So that I believe more that that's kind of what God was leading me into. Like the, the kind of love that you are growing into isn't something you can develop on your own. You're going to have to, you're going to have to pray, pray for this. Right. And so this is something that I'm going to give you, but you've got to clear, you've got to create space for it too. So this becomes a part of my practice. feels so liberating. When I get into Lubbock, it was probably coming to the end of that first semester. Uh, I just felt like I had, I was really happy. I was working on my PhD program, felt a lot of hope for the future. I just felt good. And I felt like I had a lot of love to give. And I, and I, at one point I had this prayer where I just thought, maybe we could revisit this question, right? Of marriage, right? <laughs> I'm prepared. Like I'm prepared to never be married and I'm okay with that. But over the course of the previous seven years, it went, I went from believing I would never be married, like really firmly. And then I actually, I would tell people that, and I felt rebuked at one point. And in the rebuke, it was, if you were to have true faith in Jesus Christ, it is not for you to decide that you will not be married, but rather to prepare yourself to not be married and then to leave it in my hands. So that was a clarifying rebuke, right, that I felt. <laughs> From Heavenly From Father. Heavenly <laughs> <laughs> at first when you said that, I thought it was someone else. No, but yeah. it was, no, it was a, very, a very spiritual but loving rebuke. But it was one of those, like, remember, this is about faith. This isn't about foreclosing, right, Mm. as a way of sort of maintaining some kind of control over your life. This is about having faith and taking this again one day at a time and trusting the process. So then I started to feel over the years, like, maybe I could see myself getting married in this life, but probably later rather than sooner. That started to shift. Like, I could imagine it sooner than later, and I'm also okay if that never happens. Like, I'm prepared if that never happens. But then I thought, like, God, can we just revisit this question? And had a prayer one night that, you know, is this something that could be a possibility? Because if it is, I want to open myself to it. And didn't get any kind of uh, immediate, um, like, impression or Mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. But it was within the next week or two, Danielle, uh, my now wife, reached out. Because I was friends with her brother. I didn't know her very well. But I was good friends with two of her siblings. She reached out because she knew that I was in MFT or that I was in a... a, um, 
had done my graduate work in marriage and family therapy. She was thinking about going back to school in marriage and family therapy. And I was one of the first people that came to her mind as she was thinking, like, who could I ask questions about? So she reached out just to ask me if I could, if she could ask me some questions about the field. This was getting close to Christmas Christmas break. So I... Um, and Ty, how old were you at this point? 31. 31, okay. At this point. So, was that 30? Yeah, 31. <clears throat> And because I was going to be back in Utah, I just said, I would love, you know, um, I'd love to just take you to lunch and, you know, because I thought a date couldn't hurt. Because she would send, she would like comment on my Facebook post. We're kind of a Facebook success story. Like she would comment on my posts and she would say these really witty, you you know, Danielle, she's She's super witty. Super witty. Very witty. Super funny. Very funny. And she would just write these little witty, funny things that I would find myself just kind of smiling about like a day or two later, you know. And when she reached out and asked me this question, I just thought, you know, worst case scenario, I don't want to go out again. But like a date couldn't hurt. And as I started thinking about it, I just started to feel like maybe this was actually like an orchestrated thing. Before you actually went out with her. Before we even went out. I started feeling like this could be something. She didn't know any of that. But she, so I, but so we ended up going out. and, And even before I went home, I was like, okay, God, I've got, I'm going to be home for three weeks. Ty, I remember, I think you and I had a conversation about this, about this time. Did we? Well, I don't, I, it seems like, because I remember this. I remember when, I remember that you were just going to spend a little bit of time with her. And for some reason, I think we had a conversation about this we might at have. that time. But I thought, I'm going home. I've got, a th- I've got three weeks between semesters. And I, I prayed a very specific prayer. I said, God, I, I, will, I will do my part. If this is if this is a possibility, and if there's anything right about this, I will do my part. And you have three weeks to do yours. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're on a timetable. We're here. on a timetable. <laughs> so I, but but I took her out to lunch, and uh, we didn't even talk about MFT. And we then we went out again, uh, maybe nine. We went out probably nine times in that three weeks that I was home. Wow. By the end of that, I we both knew that we were interested, but I was also going back to Texas for mm-hmm. school. And so then she came down and, again, it was really just kind of ambiguous. Like, how do you make that work? But she came down to visit two or three weeks later. She had a friend from her graduate program that was living. He was doing his doctorate at the at Texas Tech in business. So he, uh, she thought, I've always wanted to go visit him. I could hit two birds with one stone. If this doesn't work, I've wanted to, I've wanted to visit him anyway. But she came down for about four days, and it was after that. And it was just, again, felt so divinely orchestrated, like just kind of riding this wave of mm. spirit and mm-hmm. rightness. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it felt like I had come home. It was just this kind of really, it was hard, a hard to describe feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it felt really right. And so at the end of that, um, even though we hadn't used the M word or L word or any of that, she, we just both kind of felt like this is probably where this is going. And then we had some conversations over the phone after that and, and made, a, made a decision that she would come down, she would move down so we could pursue dating. But then even before she moved down, we ended up getting engaged. But one of the things that when she came down to visit, and this is where this kind of mindfulness piece comes in, she was looking, you know, I'm, I, when I moved to Lubbock, I wasn't going to, I didn't want to live, I wasn't going to do student housing anymore. And I just didn't want to do this student thing. So I had my own apartment you know, I can decorate. Like, it's one of my stereotypical <laughs> qualities. 
so I'm not doing the man cave or bachelor pad. I'm just, I've got my own nice little apartment and she came to visit and she opens the fridge and I've got food in there and she opens my pantry and I've got plenty of food in there and my linen closet's organized. And, and at one point it wasn't then, but later she's, and there was a kind of deflation that felt very, very deflating for her. And she said, I just feel like you don't need me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. And that was very discouraging for her. But to me, you know, and I just said, I don't need you, right? And to me, this is like this liberating, like I've come to this place of like enlightenment, right? That, you know, <laughs> but she. This is the part you it. were talking about earlier yes. where this kind of. So I said, I don't need you. I'm interested in you. Like, I really like you. And I can see, I really want, like, like having you in my life feel, I don't remember exact, the exact words after that, but it was kind of like having you in my life feels like I want, I want to see where this goes. I, I, you know, want you in my life, right? Just this kind of thing. There's like a pathway I, kind of opening in front of you. Yeah. Like it just it. felt really good. Like I see, like I want, I didn't say this at the time, but the way it kind of felt like I want to gift love. To, like I want to love you. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. And, and I, but it wasn't like an aspirational kind of thing. It was like, I have a lot of love to give and I want to give it to you. And so I choose you. Yeah, I choose you. That's and, awesome. and so she didn't like that at all. <laughs> and she came to me and I hear a version of this might be slightly different, but it's pretty close. Cause I, I think the timetable of when I cause she's heard me tell this. She's like, that's not when I said that, but it, but it, but it was a little bit later. She came back and said, um, I want to talk about that conversation because I've thought a lot about it and why I hated so much, like what you said, like why that, why that bothered me so much. But it was, a, but it was part of her own moment of self-reflection that one of her own kind of shadow impulses was uh, of kind of trying to create security in relationships was trying to make people need her mm. because if you need me, you won't leave me. Mm. So this was an, uh, not in her awareness but as she reflected on it, yes. she realized, and that's what you mean by shadow, as it was in the dark, she didn't really see it. Yes. But this brought it up for her, and yes. she was willing to look at it. Yes. And so she has this awareness that, like, that, um, part, that her, this tendency to want to make people need her, but, the, but that's a double-edged sword, because the other side of that is, but if you didn't need me, would you want me? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so the very thing that she would do to create security also in some way undermined the very security that she was seeking. How interesting. Yeah. And and we do, we all do different kinds of this. And this is why this kind of transactional nature of relationships doesn't, doesn't work because mm-hmm. as much as we like to think of it as love, at some point it boils down to utility. You make me happy and you meet my needs. But what happens when you stop making me happy and meeting my needs? Then I need to go find somebody else who's going to make me happy and meet my needs. And right? the cycle continues. And the cycle continues. So when she told, but then she said, as I realized, as I was, as I had this realization that this was kind of what was going on for me and that you're, she said at the same time that it felt very vulnerable to have to trust your love, that I couldn't do something to make you need me. Mm. That felt very vulnerable, but at the same time, I believed your love was a choice and I trusted that you would not unchoose it. And that trust led me to feel very safe Wow! at the same time. 
right? So she's having this sort of her own kind of realizations around a lot of this, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that became, and that that's been a lot of our our journey has been just choosing, right, to love each other. And for some people, kind of, and again, in our Western context, that feels very unromantic and maybe empty. But it mm-hmm. was just, it's felt very full. And I think there's a there's a um, a German psychologist, Eric Fromm, who wrote a classic book called The Art of Loving. Right. And he makes a comment in there. He said, the problem with love is that most of us think that loving is easy. It's finding the right people to love that's hard. He said, but when we understand what love is, we understand that developing a capacity to, tr- to truly love is very, very hard. But once we do, finding people to love is very, very easy. Oh, and this is what it comes down to, <clears throat> that when we understand love as a spiritual gift, right, as Brad Wilcox would say, God and, God and Christ don't love us because of what we do. They love us because it's what they are. Yeah. It's outside of their character. They can't not. And if this is the kind of being that we're becoming, the love has to flow out of us. It's not something that we earn or that becomes part of this transactional relationship, romantic or not. Right. Mm-hmm. So there can certainly be a romantic flavor, but romanticism, romanticism is a beautiful flavor of relationships and it's a horrible foundation. It's an unsustainable foundation. Romanticism is an unsustainable foundation for relationships. Beautiful flavor, unsustainable foundation. Mm. Feelings. And certainly not a neurochemical cocktail of dopamine and rubber. Right. And- <laughs> Right. Oxytocin. We and, talk a right, lot about the chemicals on here. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Yeah. That neurochemical, co- if we're relying on the, on a neurochemical cocktail to sustain a relationship, it it's a it's kind of dead from the start, right? It might feel good, but once you kind of just ride that wave, you're going to ride it right out. So love, all of that again can be present with love, but it's not love. So that's this is these are the things that I'm learning through all of this, this mindfulness stuff and. <clears throat> and where it comes down to, I, I had shared two, and you had brought this up as something you were thinking of, the Henry Nouwen quote. Yes. Where Henry Nouwen, right? And, and I think I was, I think the first time I read this talk by Henry Nouwen was when I was in Abilene. So there was kind of early on as I'm, and that wasn't even really in the spirit of kind of, um, kind of mindfulness or contemplative spirituality, but one of the teachers, the contemplative Christian teachers that I was listening to had quoted something of his. So I went and I went and then read it. But in this talk, right, it's moving from solitude to community to ministry. He shares this episode <clears throat> in the life of the Savior, I think in Luke 6, where, say, you know, the Savior goes up into the mount, communes through the night in solitude with God, comes down in the morning, you know, brings his apostles in, into community, then they together go out into ministry. And he said this order of operations is essential, right? That if we look to other humans to give us what only God can give us, that's going to ultimately fail. We have to go to God to get first what he can give us. And the more we feel full in God, the more space we can hold for other people to be who they wow, are. Yeah. <clears throat> right? I'm not claiming, so this phrase, if I can just read read another one more quote. Yes. This phrase, claiming them for their own needs, that comes from Henry Nouwen because he made this statement. He said, when we think back to the places where we felt most at home, we quickly see that it was where our hosts gave us the precious freedom to come and go on our own terms 
and did not claim us for their own needs. Only in free space can recreation take place and new life be found. The real host is the one who offers that space where we do not have to be afraid and where we can listen to our own inner voices and find our own personal ways of being human. But to be such a host, we have to first of all be at home in our own house. Hmm. So this idea of being in solitude with God, communing with God. Being able to be alone. Being alone, right? Knowing that we're the beloved. Coming into relationship with others who know that they are the beloved. Yeah, he says that. Yeah. I am beloved and you are beloved. Mm-hmm. What's that quote? Um, I am beloved and you are beloved. He said it this way. He said, why is it so, <clears throat> why is it so important that solitude come before community? It's because that if we do not know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we're going to expect someone else in the community to make us feel that way, right? But be that spouses or this, peers or We whoever. see this all the time in the singles world. It's what Brene Brown calls the hustle for worthiness. Yes. Right? Right. Yeah. And so he said, we're going to expect somebody in the community to make us feel that way. But they cannot. We'll expect someone else to give us that perfect, unconditional love. But community isn't loneliness grabbing onto loneliness. I'm so lonely and you're so lonely. It's solitude grabbing onto solitude. I am the beloved and you are the beloved. And together we can build a home. We can build a home together and create space for God and for the children of God. I love that. It's just a total <clears throat> shift. Yes. Total shift. But absolutely what Sharon and I talk about all the time on this podcast is you have to do your own work. Yes. You have to get yourself in a place where you're whole and you feel good about yourself and have confidence and know who you are Mm -hmm. before you get in relationship with someone else. Yes. And this is where I think the mindfulness piece kind of intersects with Mm -hmm. the God piece, right? Because on on some level, and I think the best metaphor for this comes out of ether, right? So you have the the brother of Jared who is trying to figure out this whole light solution, right, for the barges. Right. Goes and takes these stones and moltens them until they are clear as glass and takes these clear stones and brings them to God and says, will you touch them with your finger? You're talking the stones represent us. The stones represent us. So when you say do our inner work, and it is a sort of a symbiotic process too, right? Because God helps us in that. Right. It's not linear. <clears throat> Correct. But, there, but, there's, but we, d- we have this inner work is we have to do the work to create that To make this that stone clarity. nice and clear and yes. clarity. And the, more, the clearer we are as we go to God and say, will you, will you, you know, into intimacy, into community or to communion, Will you touch me with your finger that I can will shine? You, will you forth? bless my life? Yes. Will you bless my clarity? Will you use me for yes. your good? Yes, yes. And so that together, right? Because we can't, we can't. The light, you know, it, for all the clearing out that he did, he couldn't create light, right? That light has to come from God. There's a, there's a, there's a power, um, and a sustaining grace, mm. right? In that, in that, in that intimacy, that endowment, right? That we receive from God. <clears throat> that power. But we have to, we have to, but he doesn't, he can't just do that for us without us doing, being willing to be a part of that process. Yeah. Right. And of clearing out and looking at the wounds and bringing those wounds, right. As long as they were kind of, we've got, you know, we're sort of living in this compartmentalized 
way, you know, burying emotions and, you know, exiling our trauma and this sort of thing. The more we bring that in and bring that to God, he our works with us self, in it. Our whole experience. Everything. Everything. And we, we, we've, <clears throat> I, I, I love, this is one of my favorite stories in the scriptures mm. of the 16 stones. And I, every now and again, go back to it and study it, but I have never thought of it in this way. Yeah. I love this. And this was the this was the gift that I feel like I had. I was able, and it was with God, right? So again, I don't again I don't want to send a message. That this is perfectly linear process, right? Because God was with me even in the clearing, mm-hmm. and yes. kind of led me to what needed to be cleared. Absolutely. But in that process of of healing and integrating, right, and and feeling like I was really growing in and becoming this core true self. I mean, I had the luxury of bringing that into, and I've still got my work to do, but, but it's sort of, but, but to, have, to be able to do so much of that before I ever came into relationship, as opposed to discovering that later and having that impact a relationship in a, in a traumatic wow. or painful way. I mean, it really was a gift to have the space for all those years to be able to do that and then bring that into a relationship in a way that the relationship has just, it's just been uphill and life-giving rather than again this sort of negotiative um so you've just been when you say uphill you've just been on your journey yeah going where you need to go yeah and look at all the things you're doing and and Mm -hmm. and it's like it's like god used you and you were willing to be used you were present to that and you were willing to do whatever you needed to do to Mm -hmm. get yourself to this clear place so that you could be on the path you are on the path you're on, mm-hmm. which, and so you don't have to spend all of this negotiating and angst and all this stuff in your marriage. You can be moving forward in both your and Danielle's life purpose yeah. and missions going forward. Yeah. How beautiful. Yeah. And so that's been our life together. And so she, you know, and we've both continued to do a lot of our own work, even as, you know, and as uh, marriage is a crucible, right? Yes. And it so reflects it reflects back of, to us our things we need to look at. Yes, yes. right. And so for both of us, the marriage has been um, a gift in that it's revealed to us where our ongoing work is, right? Right. And, you know, there's a Christian writer who wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, but the subtitle is a sermon in itself. Uh, the subtitle is, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Yes. And, you know, and it, and it can be both. Certainly it's not a, it's not a, there's, those aren't mutually exclusive. It's not exclusive. an either or, yeah. But there is this idea that if we go in realizing that this is a crucible that is designed to, to bring more holiness into our lives and in that holiness, ultimately greater joy, right? Right. But then, um, then we don't feel betrayed, right? When we have, when Problems. hard things happen. When right? hard things yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful perspective. I love this. Um, I love this whole shifting of thinking to this place of doing our inner work, being in a place of Zion within ourselves, and then we can come <clears throat> to the relationship that God ordains us to come to, and that mm-hmm. we choose for sure. There's choice in it. Yeah. I love this. Thank you, Ty, so much for sharing with us. This has been fabulous. And I just really, really hope that all of our listeners will take a listen to this because I think there's a, I think there could be mind shifting, body shifting, life shifting things that can happen in people's lives if they'll really 
take to heart some of your experiences and what you've been through and the things you've learned. Yeah. So thank you so much for being with us today. Such a pleasure to be with you. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and that it inspired you on your dating journey. Please share this with anyone you think might benefit from what you've heard today and click the button to follow us. You can reach either Sharon or I at datetoyourpotential.com. We work with people who are single or married. We want you to know you are not alone. We support you. We are in this with you.